You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed among, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteousness will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for, by becoming a curse for us, for it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed, redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it, is no longer, it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Here ends the reading. So hello everyone, I'm Colin. If I've not met you, great to have you along with us. Happy Father's Day, if that's thing. And if it's a sad day for you, uh, you're in our prayers as well. Oh, hang on. This is, I'm going to show you 30 seconds of video in a moment. Sporting history is littered with people, examples of people celebrating too early. Okay, here we go. Let's have a look at this. Here's a few of them. 
there's a moral to this story. Yeah, it looked like a bit of showboat in. Come on, Jimmy. On. He's getting the crowd. He wants <laughs> the crowd to cheer us. Run was the whole shot, and she could just run with it. Exactly. Oh! Jacob Ellis goes down. Didn't necessary oh, Ellis goes there. Down. She didn't need to do. A shocker on the home stretch. Oh. Tanya Breen of Switzerland grabs the gold, oh and Jacob Ellis gets the silver. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best one. So these are all examples of, of behaving like you've got something in the bag when actually you had to do more to cross the line. And the question is, is that what we're doing as Christians when we say our salvation is secure? We've got complete assurance that we're right with God. Things are all set for eternity. Are we celebrating too early? I mean, the Bible's got lots of metaphors about running the race and, and enduring to the end. Are we guilty of, of not playing to the whistle? Have we got more to do? Well, the Galatians that Paul's writing to in this letter, they've become convinced they have. Um, having first accepted the gospel as it is, that they are right with God through faith in Jesus alone, they're now buying into the idea that they also additionally need to start following some Jewish customs and laws. And it's such an astonishing turnaround. Paul's so surprised by this. He wonders if someone has like, cast a spell on them, like, you know, like, like Eric in The Little Mermaid. No? Just my favorite film? Okay. Um, it's, coming, it's like they're under a spell so much that verse 1 he says, Who has bewitched you? Who's cast a spell on you? And what we're looking at today is Paul saying, look, you had it right in the first place, and now you're getting it wrong. You can't be made right with God by what you do, and here is the why. Here's why you can't. So these are his arguments about how we can't be made right with God through our good works, through the things that we do. So today's part of the argument is a bit negative. It's what the law can't do. But please don't hear me say today that the law was bad, like the law was like God's difficult experimental third album or something that didn't quite work out. No, the law is a good part of God's good purposes. And Daniel um, will preach next week and help us to see what, what the law is. But today we're looking at what the law isn't. Okay. So there's an outline there. Uh, first point then. First, he brings them... Back to the cross. Back to the cross. Uh, I wonder, have you got a favorite TV theme song? Okay, we got a new microwave recently, and it plays the notes that it plays when you sign it off just keeps bringing back to mind um, a particular uh, theme tune. This one. See if you know it. I might be showing my age if this works. Recognize this one? Old enough. Yeah. 
you want to watch the whole episode now, don't you? Who shot JR? Kids, ask your parents, you know. But a good theme tune like that, when I hear that, it evokes for me, every time I hear it, there's a whole sort of vibe and texture of that show, the storylines, the characters, J.R., Sue Ellen, Bobby, all of that. And not just that, like, the, that whole era of um, big shoulder pad 80s. All that from just a few notes coming from a microwave. Now, for Christians, our theme tune that we keep coming back to, to set us straight, is the cross of Christ. Jesus' cross. See, Paul's exasperated with the Galatians. He says, you foolish Galatians. He's basically saying, you idiots. You know the theme tune. Why are you singing a different one? And so he takes them back to the original message, back to the cross. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. See, the gospel is no mysterious um, layer-by-layer journey of discovery. The gospel is plain, obvious, centered on an historical event that we can know about in enough clarity that it's as if we've seen it ourselves. So the whole idea of trying to earn our salvation is at odds with the fact that the gospel isn't a list of ideas or rules or a philosophy. The gospel isn't some, about something we do. It's an announcement of something done for us. The gospel is good news, not good advice. Good news, not good advice. Jesus' death on the cross, taking the punishment we deserve, restoring us to peace with God, is something that has been done for us to accept and put our faith in, not something for us to do. The good news about Jesus is not a demand, but an offer. And Jesus was a great teacher, he's a prophet and, and a holy man, all of that are tr- is true. But the heart of the gospel is Christ crucified. His sacrifice on the cross, completely effective at paying the price for everything we ever have done or ever will do wrong. And so the right response to this gospel is believe it. Believe that promise. Accept Jesus' crucifixion for what it is. God stepping into history to get you into his family. And the wrong response indifference, thinking that you're okay without this intervention. Or, like the Galatians were starting to do, come up with your own scheme for getting right with God. Living like the whistle hasn't gone yet, and there is more for us to do to be saved. Now, this warning, this is a warning for us, because the Galatians weren't outsiders. They were that Paul's writing to, there were, there were believers. There were insiders, part of a new church plant. And yet people had come in who were so persuasive that even seasoned missionaries were falling for their message. So how can we protect ourselves from becoming bewitched, as Paul puts it? Well, keep developing your gospel instincts and trust them. 
keep holding things up against the cross. So if what you're hearing makes the cross seem in any way less significant, reject it. If what you're hearing is so legalistic, so rulesy, that it sounds like you need it in addition to the cross, reject it. On the other hand, if it's so permissive, so anything goes, that it suggests that the cross wasn't needed at all, reject it. Hold it up to the cross. If it tries to carry the weight that only Jesus can carry on the cross, you're standing before God as fully loved and accepted, reject it. So, with that theme tune of the cross playing, Paul gets into persuading us why we can't be made right with God by what we do. Um, He's going to remind them of their own experience, and then he's going to look at the Bible, how Abraham shows that being right with God has always come through faith, not through works. And then finally, we'll follow each approach through to its conclusion, relying on the law leading to God's curse and faith leading to God's blessing. So, first of all, Paul urges them to remember your story. Remember your story. And it's looking at verses 2 to 5, actually. I think it's a 6 in your outlines, but it's 2 to 5. So, Paul asks them a series of rhetorical questions, questions with an obvious answer. Questions to get them to think about their own experience of Jesus. Because what they'll do when they see the conclusion that they need to get circumcised or follow customs or do anything else to get saved just doesn't fit with what they've already experienced and been through in real, earthy, lived life. So verse 2 and 3, asking the question, how did you receive the Spirit? So just know this isn't a question of if they receive God's Holy Spirit. God gives his Holy Spirit to anyone who comes to believe. It's the Holy Spirit in us who regenerates us, makes us new, brings Jesus to us and us to Jesus. So the question is, with the obvious answer is, how did they come to receive the Spirit? How did they receive the Spirit? Was it by keeping a load of rules? Was it by getting circumcised? Or was it by believing what you heard? Paul's saying, look, you numbskulls, having started knowing you were saved by faith, why do you think you now need to carry on by some other method. And verse 4, after all you've been through, so experience there can also be translated suffered. So all you've been through and suffered and experienced living by faith in Jesus, why would you now say that's all for nothing and I've got to go and visit the surgeon? Verse 5, is God doing amazing things among you because you happen to follow the right formula and set of rules? Or is it because you believed what you heard? And the answer, of course, by believing what they heard. So have a think about your own coming to faith in Jesus from God's point of view. Was God standing on the sidelines waiting for you? Once you'd come to trust and believe in Jesus, was he waiting for you to do the appropriate things right? Was he sitting there waiting for you to stop sinning enough, get just over the threshold, read your Bible and pray enough, come to church enough, and then he would give you his spirit and save you? No. All you did was hear the gospel, believe the message, 
and accept it. And Paul's point is, you started by means of faith, you received God's spirit and were put on a new track, life in the age to come, rescued from this present evil age. You don't need, now need to jump tracks again to finish the job yourself. So living the Christian life is not like um, the rocket phases of a lunar module, you know, where Saturn V rocket is just enough to get you into orbit, uh, but there's a whole load of other things you need to do to get to the moon, to, to complete your salvation. It's all done, all done for you already. And there are right ways to live in response, yes. There is a life worthy of salvation. But Jesus has brought you complete love and acceptance by God right now and forever. So that's a great comfort when we fail, isn't it? You know, if, if you stop and think about it, this Sunday, are you more or less accepted and loved by God than you were last Sunday? Now, I hope you've had a great week of growing in godliness, and you are today more like Jesus. But what I expect is that lots of us have gone backwards. I expect that this week lots of us have done things that we are ashamed of. But Jesus has covered it all. He's paid for that stuff too. So we are still loved and accepted as our Heavenly Father's children. Just like I reckon all the dads here know that their kids will have behaved in, in this week in better or worse ways, but you still, whatever they've done, accept them and love them as your sons and daughters. And when we first come to faith, we know all this, of course, don't we? Because we haven't got anything to offer. But we receive God's Spirit and we begin to change. We appreciate new things, new truths, and we start getting rid of the bad old self. And before you know it, you can see some genuine radical change in yourself. But if we aren't careful, we can gradually transfer our trust from Jesus to trusting in our own performance for him. The bare facts are, all we had to do was hear the truth, believe it, and accept it. That's it. And humanly, that doesn't sound like enough, does it? But that's it. So when you're feeling guilty as sin, or when you're feeling proud as punch, ask yourself that question. Did you receive the Spirit by works, or by believing what you heard? So remember your own experience, Paul says, and next, remember Scripture. Remember Scripture. Paul here pulls a trump card for arguing about Jewish things, right? He appeals to the father of the Jews, Abraham. Verse 6. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. In other words, righteousness, so being in right relationship with God, loved and accepted by him, 
has always been about faith and not about keeping the law. So it's not the case, as you often hear, that in the Old Testament, God is all judgy and rulesy, and then by the New Testament, he's kind of chilled out a bit, and it's all about love and mercy. No, God has always been about our heart relationship of trusting in him by faith first. Faith in God has always been what makes us right with God. And if you or I are relying on God and his promises for our salvation by faith, we are, and we'll sing about this in our last song today, we are children of the promise, like Abraham. We're part of God's eternal family of those who have faith in him. You see, Abraham was given promises. He was given good news. He was given a gospel. And it was paraded before his eyes. Verse 8. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, so that's the nations, so that's non-Jews, by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So Abraham was saved by trusting that promise. A promise that included uh, the uncircumcised nations, that's you and me, Even though it seemed incredibly unlikely, Abraham believed this gospel and accepted it. And that's what made him right with God. And all of this happened before God had even mentioned circumcision, the Ten Commandments, or any of the law. All of that was before the law. So our experience tells us not to trust works for salvation. Abraham and the rest of the Bible tells us not to trust in works for our salvation. But what if we do? Where does the road of trusting in our own works lead? And where does the road of faith, trusting in God, lead? That's our final heading. Works of the law versus faith. Curse versus blessing. Whatever the law is good for, and it is good, Daniel will show us that next week, what it isn't for, the law is not for, is making us right with God, winning our salvation. In fact, Paul says, let's do a thought experiment. Let's say you do want to rely on the law. What does the Bible tell us about that? Verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, and this is a quote from Deuteronomy 27, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. So curse is a funny word, isn't it? Now, curse here doesn't mean some sort of spooky spell that gives you bad luck. Curse means God's just and fair judgment. So when your eyes see something really unfair or just plain evil, and you just love to be able to do something about it, to stop it and give it its just desserts, well, God's curse is him carrying that out, except God, unlike us, is completely holy, completely uncorrupted, 
totally fair and able to take absolutely everything into account. So that's God's curse, God's just and fair, settled opposition against evil. And the bad news is that left to our own devices, that's what every single one of us is under, because not one of us keeps all the law. You don't need me to tell you that it's true of you and I this week, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if we're trying to get to heaven by following the law, instead we'll end up under God's curse, fairly. And verse 11 tells us again, quoting Habakkuk this time, that in any case, this isn't how you are justified. Justified means like in court being declared innocent before God. No, you're justified by faith. So Paul isn't against the law. It's a given that the law is a good thing. But very specifically, Paul is against being justified, being declared innocent in court by the law. What he's arguing is that we can only be justified by trusting in Jesus' death on the cross. He is our only hope. Jesus is the only one who could ever claim, in verse 12, like in verse 12, to live by the law, by keeping all of it. And verse 13, Jesus deserved life for keeping all the law, but he chose instead to transfer that life, that perfect record, to us and transfer the curse we deserve to himself to become that curse for us. Trading places with us, trading blessing the curse. Then verses 14 to 18, that's a, a bit of an intricate argument, but the gist is this. The idea of faith in Jesus actually predates the law because the promises made to Abraham were also promises for Jesus, promises of blessings that would be received by faith. And so the law that came after 430 years of God's people living in Egypt, that didn't then replace or annul God's promises. God didn't, like, change his mind when he gave the law. The law wasn't a new phase in God's plan, salvation 2.0. No, verse 18. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Being right with God, being saved, always has been and always will be about God's grace and accepting that by faith. Trying to be saved by following rules or doing good works leads to curse. Trusting in Jesus Accepting him, becoming a curse for you by faith, leads to blessing. The blessing of eternal life, life in full fellowship with God now and forever. The blessing of justification, being declared innocent, righteous before God, based on Jesus' record instead of your own. The blessing of God's spirit 
living in, in you, making you a new person in Christ, changing you from the inside out. Well, the Bible is full of ethics, isn't it? It's full of directions for living well, good things we should do, bad things we shouldn't. So how should we continue on until the final whistle? How should we live? We continue on in faith. See, by faith, we keep humbly accepting that we need Jesus to become a curse for us and humbly accepting him doing that for us, swallowing our pride. By faith, we believe the promise that God indwells us by his spirit and will keep changing us, giving us what we need to become more like Jesus and keep going till the end. And living by those promises will keep us from doing good works to try and drown out our own guilt because we know our guilt is already dealt with. And it'll stop us doing good works to help us, um, to help us think we deserve God's blessing and, and becoming proud because of that. So to finish, I was trying to think of an illustration about this, but actually... Jesus has already written one for us, which is handy. If you really want to know what God is like, what he wants from us, look later on today, have a look at Luke 15, where Jesus tells the story of two sons. One of them treats his father like rubbish. You know, he goes off and wastes the family fortune, partying, pleasing himself, and eventually becoming destitute. And it's a picture of what we do in our rebelling against God, living life our own way. But that son, sort of half believing, half a promise he half thinks might be true, returns to his father on the off chance that he might be able to get work as a slave and not starve. But actually what happens is dad runs to him, hugs him, throws him the party of the decade to welcome him back to a place of honor. And it's all grace. It's all the Father's grace, all happening because the Son had faith in his dad. It's a picture of us accepting and believing in Jesus. But it's not the parable of the prodigal son. It's the parable of two sons because there's an older son who followed the rules and he's got his nose severely out of joint. Why should this selfish idiot brother get anything? He doesn't deserve to be allowed in. Never mind to get a party. I've done all this stuff for you over the years. Where's my party? And that's a picture of the Pharisees Jesus was dealing with, believing that God owed them one for their good works. And it could be a picture of you or I if we start trusting in our own good works. Standing outside the house, whinging about how good we are instead of rejoicing in the presence of the Father we're trying to please. But the Father, representing God the Father, replies to the oldest son. My son, the Father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
God's purpose for each and every one of us is and always has been to be in that right, joyful relationship with him. And the way to overcome our sin, the way to be restored to his family, is and always has been to trust in his promises, to trust in the good news that Jesus has paid it all, become a curse for us, and because of that, God declares us innocent and welcomes us into his family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus has done it all. Uh, Please defend us from becoming bewitched by other gospels, false gospels. Please help us keep hearing that theme tune of the cross and having that defend us from becoming too proud or too despondent. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.